Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at PolinaMarket.com. This week, we feature a very familiar voice to Chicago sports fans, former Cubs and current Braves play-by-play voice, Chip Carey. I think that moment was really big for my grandfather because in so many ways, uh, look, he was the king of Chicago. He was the voice of the Cubs and and been in the Hall of Fame and all of that kind of stuff. But as a family person, obviously, that was a big hole in his life. And I think to have his son and his grandson doing what he did, doing the same broadcast together, I think gave him uh, a sense of completeness as far as his family life was concerned that he never could have imagined. Chip Carey's name is synonymous with baseball broadcasting. All you have to do is check his lineage. From his father, Skip, to the legendary Harry, the family name carries on, now in its eighth decade. Chip had the unenviable task of stepping in as the lead voice of the Cubs when Harry passed away in 1998. But he did so most admirably for seven seasons before an unceremonious ending. He's as amiable a fellow as you can find, open, engaging, and even honest to a fault. So, Chip Carey, tell me a story I don't know. Uh, a story you don't know. It's a story about chemistry. Um, you know, I, I think when people watch a broadcast, they can tell innately whether the people they are, that are working together get along or not. 
Um, and there have been many, many broadcast teams where the broadcasters did not speak to each other, didn't like each other. And when they were away from the microphone, uh, they never really interacted with each other. They never got to know their families. In fact, there are some instances where they absolutely hated each other, but it never came across on the broadcast. Uh, the story about chemistry involves Steve Stone and me. And uh, in my, as you said, tenure with the Cubs, we had one production meeting. And it was my first game with the Cubs during the regular season in 1998. And we were in Miami. I'd flown in from Orlando uh, where I'd done a basketball game the night before. It's opening day with the Marlins. And Steve said, I'm going to rent a car and we're going to drive to the stadium. You're driving because you know Florida and you know how to get us to the ballpark. And let's just talk about how the broadcast is going to go. And I think about this. It's the year after, you know, shortly after my grandfather had died. Uh, he was uh, thrust into this role of having to break in a new partner, someone he knew from afar but had never worked with before, and was probably wondering, is this kid going to come in and be Harry Carey Jr.? Is he going to be his own self? Is he going to be uh, a gigantic ego? How, how is all of this going to meld together? So we get into our rental car at the uh, Fort Lauderdale Marina Marriott, and we start our way to uh, what was then, I think, Pro Player Stadium for, for the uh, series with the Marlins. And Steve said very simply, so – how's this going to work? And I looked at him kind of quizzically and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, it's really simple. How's this broadcast going to work? Like I've been working with your grandfather for 16 years and basically I've been a sidekick uh, because it was always and should have been the Harry Carey show. And I said, look, Steve, it's going to work very simply. Uh, I'm the play-by-play -play broadcaster. When the ball's in play, I talk. When the ball's not in play, that's when you talk. And I said, you've forgotten more about baseball than I'm ever going to know. You played. And I think it's my job to let you be the star of the show. I don't care about that. I just want to not screw up the names, ease into this, and understand that I am not my grandfather in many ways. I'm not uh, him away from the field. I'm certainly not him behind the microphone. But I am entrusted with working with his partner and his director. So anything I do, I'm going to try to make you as successful as you can be. Because if you're good, I'm going to be good. And if I'm good, you're going to be good. And if we're both good, we're going to have a great time. So uh, we played that game. I think, it was, I think the Cubs lost. Uh, shocker. Uh, it was a, a close game. And we finished up the game. Totals, highlights, blah, blah, blah. Get ready for the 10th inning show. And Steve takes his headset off and sort of throws it on the counter. And he said, that's just great. And I took my headset off and my eyes were as big as saucers thinking, oh, God, what have I done to upset this guy who's a legend in Chicago and a guy that I'm going to really rely on in these early days to help me navigate these waters of Chicago, which, as you mentioned, George, were filled with a lot of supporters and a lot of sharks, too. And I said, what? And Steve leaned forward in his chair, almost with tears in his eyes, and stuck his right hand out and said, thank you. He said, for the first time in 16 years, I felt like an equal member of the broadcast and not just someone who was there to uh, support Harry Carey. Chicago Cubs take them on in game two of the two-game series. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to Cubs Baseball. I'm Chip Carey, joined by Steve Stone. Last night, a great ball game. The Cubs won it 4-1 to the final score. The matchup with the Sluggers didn't really materialize, Stoney. They went 0 for 9 with six strikeouts. It was like a couple of heavyweights who spent 12 rounds swinging at nothing but air, and that's exactly what happened. Although the fans came to their feet with every at bat, you can see last night wasn't the best of nights for the two big boppers. However, today the wind is blowing lazily across the left. And that's where our chemistry really began because it, I think over the course of a three hour broadcast, he figured out what I was good at, figured out what I wasn't good at, but what he knew most of all was that I had his best interests as a partner and as a friend at heart. 
And we never, ever had a production meeting ever that, after that. We never, ever had a crossword about how the broadcast should be done. We had philosophical differences about media and things that should be done. But never once, George, did Steve Stone or I ever have an argument. Never did we have a major disagreement. Never did we have a fight of any kind. In fact, uh, we almost became sort of uh, surrogate bachelors together in Chicago because my family was back in Florida. His family was in Arizona. And we had a great friendship where uh, even when the game was over and most people scatter and go to the winds, uh, we made it a point to go out and have dinner three or four times a week. And we drove to the ballpark together. We drove to the airport together. Uh, some of that was born out of loneliness because, again, our families were not where we worked. But I think most of it was based on mutual trust and mutual respect and a deep and abiding friendship that lasts to this day. And uh, that's where chemistry comes from. That's where the really great broadcasts come from. And that's where the really great friendships are born. And I'm proud to call Steve a friend to this day. You know, that's very interesting that you say that when that broadcast was done, he was so relieved that things had changed from Harry to yourself. And now I think of the transformation that he has made from Hawk Harrelson to Jason Benetti. It almost sounds like it's the same thing, only it's how many years later? Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, when I was in Chicago, uh, shortly after Harry died, Steve wrote a book. And he said it was a sing the title of the book was the single most asked question he received in his 14 or 15 or 16 years, however many it was, that he was Harry's partner. And that was, hi, Steve, where's Harry? <laughs> and ultimately, that's a great compliment because they were so close and so good. It was such a unique broadcast, but it was Harry and Steve. Um, our broadcast was Chip and Steve, almost one word. And uh, I, I went out of my way to make him um, feel like he was important because, again, as I said, and fans in Chicago know this, um, the guy's a walking, talking baseball encyclopedia. He is Nostradamus behind the microphone. He sees and feels the game in real time and in future time. And I would have been foolish to not capitalize on that and utilize that, that, that great skill set. And I've said it a million times, and I think you, you alluded it to it in your very kind intro, I'm honest to a fault. I mean, I know what I'm not. And I think that I, was, I went out of my way to make sure that Steve understood I did not have Harry's ego. I did not have Harry's desire to be famous. I still don't. Uh, it's a great job, but it's a job nonetheless. And I felt, and I still feel to this day, that in a great TV broadcast, the analyst should be the star of the show. Very different on radio. Play-by-play -play guy has to have primacy and has to lead the way and be the, the main guy because he has to paint every single picture and description of the game. But on television, we have a unique ability. The good ones, I think, have a unique ability to paint the picture, call the play, set up their partner, and more importantly, shut up and let them fly and soar. Because if you have someone like Steve Stone who is as good as he is, as conscientious as he is, why wouldn't you let that person take center stage? And I was proud to be able to do that. So tell me a story I don't know, Chip, about the day at Wrigley Field when there were three generations of carries in one broadcast booth. And let me add, I was there for that momentous occasion. Hi, I'm Chip Carey, Major League Baseball announcer. And I'm Skip Carey, Major League Baseball announcer. And I'm Harry Carey, Major League Baseball announcer. Will the real Major League Broadcasting carry please stand up? Uh, as time has gone on, you know, it, it doesn't seem real. I guess it's almost 30 years ago now, uh, however many it is. 
Uh, I was still very young uh, in the very, very infancy stages of my broadcasting career and had no idea the enormity of what was going on. Uh, I, I think that moment was really big for my grandfather because in so many ways, uh, look, he was the king of Chicago. He was the voice of the Cubs and, and been in the Hall of Fame and all of that kind of stuff. But as a family person, obviously, that was a big hole in his life. And I think to have his son and his grandson doing what he did, doing the same broadcast together, I think gave him uh, a sense of completeness as far as his family life was concerned that he never could have imagined. For me, it was just another game. And I was there with my dad and kind of along for the three ring circus, which uh, both my dad and I weren't particularly comfortable with you know Harry loved it loved the limelight loved the attention um, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more like my dad in that uh, we have a great job but it's a job I, when the game's over I want to go home and be with my family and go have a nice meal or go just go home and relax I don't care about the limelight but for Harry that was really important because he was a uh, you know the, the personification of the American dream he had to fight for everything that he got and once he got it he wasn't going to let go of it uh, but, but funny story, we had a press conference, I guess, at Harry's Restaurant, and we were staying at uh, the Hilton up on Wacker, or the Hyatt on Wacker, I think it was a Hyatt at the time, and we were walking down uh, Water Street to cross one of the bridges across the river to get to uh, Harry Carey's downtown, and there were about 40 TV cameras with the boom microphones with the big muff uh, microphones at the end of them, and just taking pictures of us as we were walking to this press conference, and my dad leaned over to me and started laughing and said, well, now I know what John Gotti feels like, <laughs> because... <laughs> <laughs> you know, the attention, while flattering, uh, for us, for my dad and me, it was just another day at work. It was another day at the office. It's what we do. We have never, and I certainly have never, thought that my job is any more important than anybody else's gig. In fact, it's far less important than most. We're entertainers. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, because of my grandfather's popularity and what he meant to the city of Chicago and the uniqueness of three generations doing baseball at the same time, something that hasn't been done before and may never be done again, uh, we understood why there was so much attention. But uh, to be honest, I was uncomfortable with it. My dad was uncomfortable with it. But looking back, uh, I wish that I would have realized then how uh, big a moment it was for our family, uh, for our industry. Uh, because, you know, obviously with both of my dad and my grandfather being gone, I would I'd give anything to go back in that moment with the wisdom of a 55-year-old man instead of a 25-year-old man and, and enjoy and soak that in a little bit more rather than be overwhelmed by it, as I think both my dad and I were. So you're young in your career and you're sitting in a rather large chair previously occupied by your grandfather and Jack Brickhouse. I'd say the 800-pound gorilla had to be in the room for just a little while. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, my dad and I talked about it later and he said, look, there were probably only two people in the world who could have uh, attempted uh, to sit in that chair. He said, my dad said he was one of them and I was probably the other. Uh, the enormity of it, George, was, look, for all the great things that my grandfather had had in Chicago, we're, look, we're, we're wise enough to know that there are a lot of people who disliked him. Uh, a lot of former players disliked him. There are a lot of people who didn't like Harry Carey, and that's certainly their right and their prerogative. Um, but I think a lot of those people took out that angst and that anger on me. Then you have the Cubs-White Sox dynamic. Obviously, the White Sox hated the Cubs fans and anything that, that they represented and vice versa. And then it was uh, me sitting in that chair and everyone wondering, well, is he going to be just like his grandfather? Is he going to try to say, holy cow, is he going to want to sing, take me out to the ball game and do all of those things? And quite obviously, the answer to those things had to be no. If I did that, that would have been professional suicide. Um, so, um, you know, all I did when I sat in that chair was think, OK, dear God, please don't let me screw this up. Uh, number two, I had Steve Stone and Arnie Harris 
who are incredible, uh, incredible helps to me in navigating those waters that I was talking about. They knew where the, the, the you know, they knew where the rocks in the in the harbor were, and ultimately, uh, when you're young and you're new and you're impressionable. All you care about is, do you have a good team to cover? And that really hides a lot of sins. And when the Cubs got off to a pretty good start in 98, Sammy Sosa and Kerry Wood did what they did. Uh, all of that made our broadcast a lot more accessible to a lot more people. And because the team was good, they perceived us to be good. And I think that really helped smooth a lot of those, a lot of those bumps. But, but yeah, when you, you can't help but sit in that chair. And I, I did that on opening day. Uh, I got to the ballpark. It was opening day against the Expos. I think it was 36 to 35 degrees. It was sleeting and cold. And this Florida kid saying, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and I sat down in that chair and started writing out my lineups and I had to stop a minute and think about the enormity of what was going on. I'm sitting in Harry Carey's chair behind his microphone with his partner, with his crew in his ballpark, covering his team and sharing his last name with one one thousandth the experience and gravitas that he had earned in Chicago. So yeah, it was a you know, it was tough. It was hard at first. But as I said, luckily, uh, the team was good. Steve was great. Um, we had some great early calls. The Kerry Wood 20 strikeout game, I think, sort of thrust us onto the national stage as, wow, these guys can really uh, hit the big moment out of the ballpark. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. And I'm very, very proud of the fact that we got through 98 and did it my way and didn't try to copy Harry, didn't try to fall into any of his stylistic things. I was myself, warts and all. And as you said, uh, I'm honest to a fault. I am what I am and I know what I'm not. And I think more and more people respected me for that than trying to be a copycat or a facsimile of somebody else. You know, I want to ask you one more question about that because it's so, it, the whole time was so amazing when you think about it. You are here, you are ready to work with your grandfather. And suddenly in February, he dies. On behalf of the family, we're saddened to report that Mr. Harry Carey died this afternoon at 4.10 p.m. from ventricular fibrillation resulting in ischemic encephalopathy. In lay language, that's cardiac arrest with resultant brain damage. You are then thrust into that position, and that had to be challenging in itself both mentally uh, from the standpoint that you lost your grandfather, even though you didn't know him all that well, but right. that now you're the lead guy. Yeah. Uh, well, look, the, the plan was, uh, and look, I, I got the job on merit. Uh, you know, I had already started to carve out a career for myself. I'd done mm -hmm. the Braves. I'd done Fox Sports. I was doing the magic. I'd uh, worked for the Seattle Mariners. So I wasn't some kid out of, uh, uh, you know, Pocatello, Idaho, coming in from A ball to do games. I had, uh, I had a back of a bubble gum card. It wasn't an extensive one, but I had a back of a bubble gum card. And I was hired to work with my grandfather. And there was going to be a transition. It was a tryout, as it were. Um, the, the, the original job description for me was I would do all the road games with Steve Stone and travel. Uh, Harry was going to maybe go to New York once or he'd go to St. Louis. Uh, but by and large, all the road games were going to be me and Steve. And I would do the middle three games, uh, middle three innings at Wrigley and the pre and post game show. So there would have been an E, there would have been a passing of the baton, a logical, okay, let's introduce this guy to the market. Let's see what he can do. Uh, let's see what he can't do and build upon those things and improve upon them. And then when Harry decides it's time to go, it's not a shock to the entire system for everybody. Oh, my God, you know, Harry's gone. Who's this new person? Uh, as you said, he died in February and, you know, four or five, six weeks before spring training for the broadcast were to begin. Yeah, exactly. I'm thrust into that role where I have to come into Chicago, not just be a guy, but be the guy and follow the guy. <laughs> 
with the same last name and try to continue on the same, uh, you know, the same expectation of knowledge and expertise and fun uh, for, as you said, someone who'd been broadcasting for a decade, following a guy that'd been doing it for 55 years. So it was hard. Um, it was really, really hard. And it was a shock to the system. But as I said, my family was incredibly supportive. A lot of people were incredibly supportive of me and helpful. And as I, I've said a couple of times already, I'm really proud that I did it in a way that allowed me to be myself and not to try to copy somebody else. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by the Polina Market. And with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949. And it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouth-watering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Polina Market is now serving sandwiches and also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online and you can have it shipped wherever you live. I've been shopping here for 37 years and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Chip Carey on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. 1998, your first year, was such an eventful season from the way the Cubs got into the playoffs to the Sosa-McGuire chase, but just, what, some five weeks into your career, a game for the ages, and we're not overemphasizing this, Chip. Uh, You're behind the mic for what statistically was the greatest game ever pitched. So tell me a story I don't know, how you're approaching the final inning watching this rookie tall Texan named Kerry Wood challenge history. Uh, it was great. And it was done in the age, you know, before internet, before the advanced metric stats, before instant uh, information uh, at the fingertips to find out who had the strikeout records, all that kind of stuff. Um, it was, if I remember, it was kind of a misty gray, typical early May day in Chicago. You know, sometimes you get those beautiful uh, early summer uh, eve type games. And this was just kind of a dreary, gray, kind of yucky day. Shane Reynolds, I think, pitched for the Astros and he struck out 11 guys. He pitched great too for Houston. Um, but what Steve and I noticed right away was that Kerry had an unbelievable breaking ball. He had two of them. And the Astros weren't, weren't just missing by inches. They were missing the ball by a foot. And it was ridiculous, um, the, the kind of stuff he had. And we'd heard all about Kerry Wood, number one pitching prospect, you know, a guy that had a big arm but didn't have a lot of control. And the Cubs were hoping to bring him along slowly and see what he could do. Uh, but as I said earlier, that was really kind of Steve's and my national coming out party because I had probably 50, 60 messages when that game was over of people that were out doing the lawn or gardening or running errands. And they came back and they flipped the game on because it was the only game on in the afternoon. And they saw Kerry Wood has 15 strikeouts through six innings. And they're like, what? What the hell's going on? And, uh, you know, that last inning, 
we knew that it was set up for history. We knew that if he struck out the side, he would get to 21 and have the all-time record. But I also knew that Craig Biggio was up, and he'd struck out earlier in the game, and there was no way that Biggio was going to get to two strikes. So he strikes out the first guy. Biggio comes up, and I think he swings to the first or second pitch. You could hear this audible groan in the ballpark because they knew once he grounded out, there was no way that Kerry could get to 21 uh, strikeouts. And then the last hitter came up, and Sandy Martinez is behind the plate. And, uh, you know, just saw him put the two down, slider. I said, here comes the hook. And Kerry threw a perfect breaking ball, slider, strike three, 20 strikeouts, and Bedlam began. One and two. Well, one more curveball, and that should be about it, because Derek Bell isn't even coming close. Come on, number 20. Here comes the hook. Um, that's when guys who sit in the chair that I sit in uh, earn their money. And that is to try to build the drama, try to put it in context, which we did. Uh, and then when the moment comes, say what you got to say and then shut up and try to get out of the way. Uh, you're right. Statistically speaking, it is the most dominant pitching performance ever made. Mm -hmm. uh, if Kevin Ory had made that play at third base, it would have been a 20 strikeout no hitter, which would be absolutely ridiculous as if his performance wasn't ridiculous enough. Uh, but I remember feverishly looking through the record books, making sure we had the names and numbers right and how many strikeouts he needed and when he broke the Cubs record and then the National League record and then tied the Major League record. All of this being done by a 20-year-old kid out of Texas making his fourth or fifth start, me in my fourth or fifth week. There was just kind of a personal uh, professional symmetry that had to do with the Kerry Wood game. And uh, obviously it's a moment the Cubs fans won't forget, and neither will I. There's really no way to know what's about to come next after Kerry Wood's effort. There's a home run duel, born more than likely from performance-enhancing drugs, yet becomes intoxicating all the way through. And you're chronicling this chase between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. Many stories to tell here, Chip. The whole story has been told so many times, it just bears repeating because it's so great. When you think of that home run chase, you, think, you have to think of it on so many different levels. Uh, let's think back to where baseball was from the strike in 94. It was in need of something to recapture people's imaginations. And knowing what we know now, maybe we would think differently or would have thought differently of what happened in 1998, but we didn't have uh, the, the, the uh, you know, Nostradamus-like qualities that Steve Stone had to know then what we know now. But that said, you needed something to have people fall in love with the game again. People were sick and tired of the money fights. They were tired of millionaires and billionaires fighting over billions of dollars, just like they are now. Uh, you had the great rivalry between St. Louis and Chicago, uh, which has always been one of the greatest rivalries, if not the greatest rivalry in baseball, simply because of the geographic area it covers. It goes from the Rocky Mountains all the way to the Appalachians and to Canada North and to the Gulf of Mexico South. Then you have this All-American uh, California slugger, Rookie of the Year, Mark McGuire, uh, who grew up in, you know, in privileged uh, 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 upbringing in, 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 uh, the, on the West Coast. And then you have Sammy Sosa, who shined shoes and sold oranges to survive in the Dominican Republic and found a toe tap and found out how to hit at the major league level with the, the help of Jeff Pentland uh, battling it out as well. So Sosa the batter. He's one for two, and he sends a rocket deep toward left. Back goes Mabry at the track, at the wall. He's got it, number 48. Those different levels on a day-to-day -day basis, Sosa would hit two in the afternoon, McGuire would hit two at night. And going into St. Louis 
and watching that chase come down to Mark McGuire having a chance to homer with the Cubs. I mean, you talk about perfect symmetry. Uh, that, that's really the way the baseball gods would have had to draw it up. Uh, and the story that you may not know is, you know, look, I grew up in St. Louis, was a huge Cardinal fan. My grandfather did the Cardinals for 25 years. Uh, hell, in St. Louis, when you're born, you know the 64 Cardinals starting lineup before you know your ABCs. Um, to be there for that moment, uh, to watch McGuire hit the home run, to watch one of the uh, grounds crew members pick up a baseball, again, at a time where everybody was wondering who was going to catch and how much it was going to be worth, uh, for this kid to retrieve the ball and hand it to McGuire at home plate, to have Sammy Sosa greet McGuire, uh, the Maris family there, to see that sea of red in St. Louis, even the Cubs fans who were there standing and applauding was remarkable. But for me personally, the moment that really was poignant and still touches me to this day was looking over to my left. Jack Buck, uh, who was my childhood broadcasting idol in St. Louis, was there and was broadcasting the game with the Cardinals. He had on his red Cardinal Hall of Fame jacket, which he wore for the big moments. He calls the home run. McGuire rounds the bases. The fireworks go off. And, you know, we've said what we've had to say, and we're totally silent on, on TV on our WGN side. But as I look over at Jack Buck, who knew Roger Maris, who'd been in baseball since the 40s, who'd seen everything that you could possibly see in the game, he sees McGuire rounding the bases and hugging his son Matthew at home plate with tears running down his eyes. Here it comes to McGuire. Swing! Look at there! Look at there! Look at there! McGuire's number 61. McGuire's flight 61, headed for Planet Maris. That, that got me, and it still gets me when I think about that. And, and, you know, for those of us who work in the business and can get cynical about what guys do and what they should do and how much they make and all the, the, the labor fights and all the stupid stuff we have to deal with, there's still a love affair with this sport that people who work, work behind the micro telecast was and the craft of understanding just how much Cub baseball meant to people around the country. Because, again, coming from where I came from, I had no idea. And until you're in it, until you're immersed in it, you have no you, you, there's no possible way you can understand the breadth and depth of it. But uh, now that I'm away from it, I still uh, marvel at it. And uh, the old saying, once a Cub, always a Cub, really rings true. I want to move past 2003 and the monumental disappointing finish to that season mm -hmm. and on to the next one, which turned out to be no bargain. It wound up being more disappointing for you professionally, and it mm -hmm. was replete with, gosh, accusations, a celebrated, if not uncomfortable, plane ride, and eventually a divorce from the Cubs by you and Steve Stone. So tell me a story I really don't know about those sequences of events that had you leave town. Uh, well, it was, there were, there were married events. Uh, you're, you're totally accurate. You know, we had players that were coming up threatening to uh, slug Steve Stone. Uh, I was sort of guilt by, guilty by association because I was his partner. We had several opportunities where we tried to talk to the players about that. They weren't willing to do that. I won't name names. It's not necessary. Uh, I was called into the locker room uh, by one of the Cubs players who had an issue with something I had to say on the air one day, which is fine. I mean, I'm there every day, no problem. I walk in the locker room and the door is shut and it's every single player and me. Um, this player asked me why I said what I said. And I, I told him and I said in no uncertain terms, look, guys, this is very simple. I'm here because I respect who you are and what you do. Um, but my check comes from the same place yours does. I get no pleasure from saying you're, you've lost 10 games in a row. But make no mistake, I don't throw the ball, I don't hit the ball, I don't try to catch the ball. You do. And I am paid to describe your performance. 
if you don't like what I'm saying or what George Hoffman is saying or George Castle or Mike North or anybody else in Chicago says, play better. And then we'll say really good things about you. And I also said that, um, um, you know, every day one of you guys has come up to me asking to say hi to my grandmother in Pocatello, Idaho. I've used that uh, city a couple of times or wish my daughter a happy birthday. Not once has any of you guys come up to me individually or collectively and said, thank you for doing that. And if you're not going to come up and say thank you when Steve or I or anybody else on this broadcast crew talks about and lauds you for a great performance, you've really ceded the opportunity and the right to complain if we talk about you playing poorly. Um, I'm not on this team. I don't play the game. I'm, I'm paid to broadcast it. You're not paid to critique the announcers. And if that's the route you want to go, I've got the power of the microphone. And I said, the last thing I'll say is this. A lot of you guys have said, I never played Major League Baseball, so what do I know about the game? You're right. And I told him this. I said, I, yeah, I, I've never played Major League Baseball. I'm sure you guys have forgotten more about it than I have. But I've been around the game my whole life. And Jack Brickhouse, never played in the Major Leagues. Marty Brenneman, never played in the Major Leagues. Jack Buck, never played in the Major Leagues. Neither did Harry Carey uh, and about five other guys. I said, but every single one of them is in the Hall of Fame. And the last time I checked, none of you are. So I said, my advice to you would be, I'm on every bus, I'm on every plane, I stay in the same hotel that you do. If you have a problem, come talk to me. If you don't, then I assume everything's fine. And as you know, George, I was in the locker room every day. Uh, but, I, but I think the bottom line was 2004 became a convenient excuse to blame the broadcasters instead of the players who didn't play particularly well. In fairness to them, they lost their, you know, three, three of their starting pitchers in that season got hurt. And that's tough to overcome. They underachieved. They played poorly. Uh, and rather than look in the mirror and blame themselves, it became very, very convenient and easy for them to blame Steve Stone or me for their failures. Um, as far as the divorce is concerned, the part that hurt the most about that was uh, the, the uh, executives at the Tribune Company had offered me a contract with a very minimal raise. They'd offered me a two-year deal. Uh, there was a, an exclusive negotiating period for my services that they had in June, through June and July of that year to negotiate and work out a new deal. That lapsed. Uh, I had representation at the time that went out and said, okay, let's just see what else is out there just in case. And there were three or four other teams that had interest in me. One of them was Atlanta. And when the opportunity came to uh, negotiate the deal, uh, my agent, my representation, let them know by the contract that they signed and, and had me sign as well that any offer that was presented after the exclusive negotiating period either had to be matched to the letter or they had to let me go. And uh, Tribune, for whatever reason, after offering me a contract, decided not to bring me back uh, on the next to last day of the, or the last day of the season. This will be my final telecast with my partner Steve Stone here on WGN Sports. And so, although our partnership comes to an end here today, our friendship doesn't. Well, thanks for everything. You're the best. My pleasure. All right. Steve Stone, my friend and my partner, <laughs> will wrap up the 10th inning show and have... So, um, as to why that happened, I was told I didn't... Uh, I didn't uh, mesh with the fan base in Chicago it was one of the excuses I was given by a high level Tribune executive. This is after they'd offered me a two year contract. So what came of that was, well, if I had signed the two year contract inexpensively, it would have been great. But since the contract I was offered by another party was uh, significantly uh, more lucrative and longer term, I was suddenly not popular enough with the fans to come back. So. Uh, the fact that that was uh, presented that way in the media was not only dishonest, it was incorrect. 
Uh, and that was the only hurtful part. Um, but, you know, look, the Cubs have a great broadcast team now. And uh, I was really, really lucky and happy to land on my feet in Atlanta with a lot of security and uh, closer to home. And as you mentioned earlier, to, to work with my dad uh, was fantastic. But look, let's face it. Uh, I love working with Steve Stone. I love the, the magic of Wrigley Field. And uh, this is in no way, shape, or form an elicitation of sympathy or any, any uh, uh, attempt to undermine the people that are there. But I think we would all agree that uh, we had a very special broadcast. And if everything had been handled properly, Steve Stone and I would probably still be working together. And uh, we would have had a remarkable run continue in Chicago. But everything happens for a reason. Some of those things were out of my control. And uh, I, I try to look forward, not look back. But I think it's important to let people know what really happened and why it happened. And it's unfortunate uh, at the time the way it happened. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouth-watering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill? Then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available just about everywhere from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, socks and cubs, museums, and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has Farm Acres Chili, Mini Bagel Dogs, Condiments, and Classic Deli Meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. With Chick Carey on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, through all of this, you did leave and you did wind up in Atlanta. So you didn't work with your grandfather, but you started working with a new partner, which happened to be your dad. And I'm starting to think this would be a great fiction novel, but it's not. Yeah, I, I was really lucky. Uh, as you mentioned, I didn't know Harry very well. Uh, I knew my dad a little better, but not a lot. Um, and that was hard. I mean, I think people have this envi envision me that being born and laying in a crib with a golden microphone and sitting on my grandfather's lap practicing broadcasting, that's complete and total fashion. I mean, I, I barely knew the man. Uh, and, you know, the same with my father. My parents divorced when I was young. My dad was in Atlanta forging a career. I was growing up in St. Louis with my mom, and I didn't really get to spend much time with my dad until I was a college-aged person. Uh, and then I started my career, and our relationship began to blossom. So I really believe, as I said before, about closing circles. But Chip and Skip back with you from Houston Data. I can't be any prouder than a son can be to have had the chance to work with you these uh, last three years on TBS. Uh, you're my inspiration professionally and personally in so many respects. Uh, I just love you to death, and congratulations on everything you've done on TBS, and we'll have some more fun on Peachtree. I love you, pal. I love you, too. My father and I, by working together, had this wonderful opportunity to uh, get to know each other, not just as broadcast colleagues, but as friends, as father and son. And think about how odd that must sound to your audience. Uh, you know, to do that when you're 35 or 36 years old is really, really strange. 
by that time I was married. I'd had children of my own. Um, I was independent and doing things my way um, and never trading on the name, but obviously wondering what life was like on the other side. And when that, on the last day of the season, when the folks at Turner offered me the contract, uh, my dad got on the bus and they had a press release when the season was over. And Pete Van Weren said to my dad, keeping secrets from me, huh? And my dad said, I didn't know. And he didn't. Um, it was it was sort of a, a, a real bolt out of the blue because they envisioned me doing for my dad uh, what I was going to do for Harry Carey. My dad was getting older, didn't want to travel as much, and I would fill in and, and do radio and TV and all that stuff. And there'd be an ease and a transition until the baton was passed. Um, so, yeah, I had six or seven wonderful years with him. Uh, I can't tell you, George, how uh, rewarding it was to just be able to go down in the hotel lobby and bring my dad's suitcase to his room or have a drink with him on the airplane or have dinner with him on the road in the ballpark or take him to lunch and to his doctors uh, in Atlanta, pick up his dry cleaning. All the things that I think all of us take for granted when our parents are around, uh, I had a lot of catching up to do. And I think my dad and I developed an incredible friendship and an incredible bond, not just because of our last name, but because I think he came to love and respect the kind of person that I was. And he felt a great tinge of guilt for the things that he missed out on. Um, he and I had a long, tearful conversation one time where he apologized for not being there and having to look from the sidelines while there was all kinds of familial stuff having, having happened to me in St. Louis. And I just finally said, Dad, are, are you proud of and happy with the person I've become? And he said, of course. I said, then don't apologize. Those are all part of the fabric of who I am. And if you like who I am, don't regret things that happened because you can't change it. Let's just build and go forward. And we did. And to see my dad... Uh, uh, sort of uh, have that rough candy shell uh, crumble when he was around my wife and his grandchildren was incredibly rewarding uh, to know that he passed doing it his way and lived his life to the fullest without regrets or apologies or uh, pointing fingers was a wonderful lesson. And uh, the fact that we got to work together and have so many laughs and, and, and goof around on the air and have conversations that had nothing to do with baseball, but were done in the baseball context and things we laughed about uh, was the greatest gift and greatest experience that I ever had. And that obviously wouldn't have happened if I had stayed with the Cubs. So uh, I tend to look at things as, a, as blessings in disguise, as heartbreaking as it was uh, and still is to leave Chicago. Uh, the fact that I was able to go to Atlanta uh, and uh, work with such wonderful people, too, and be accepted the way I was, was uh, equally heartwarming. You know, I'm not sure many people know this, but your given name is Harry Third. Yep. But there's another Harry Carey in the family. It happens to be one of your sons. So tell me a story I don't know. Another sports announcer? Uh, two of them, actually. Huh? Uh, Harry Christopher Carey IV and his twin, identical twin brother, Stephen Andrews Carey, are at the University of Georgia. They're both in broadcasting. They're already working now. Wow. Uh, they've got uh, basketball and football and volleyball gigs uh, while they're in college. Both of them will be doing play-by-play -play for the uh, Cape Cod League this summer with Katuit for the Kettleers. Uh, they were called uh, by, I think, every team up there wanted them because they'd heard their tape. Uh, they're so smart. They're so much better looking and at their age, so much more talented and savvy than I ever was. Uh, but they've done it on their own for the most part. Uh, I, I kind of, uh, you know, I kind of gave them the hands off treatment much like my dad did because I wanted them to understand that if they want to do this, they have to chase it and pursue it themselves. Uh, I would be, I would not be doing my job as a father if I didn't try to open as many doors as I could for them. But it's up to them to walk through that door and it's up to them to not have the doors slam in their face or to be kicked out that door. And I think they understand that. Uh, they understand the sacrifices and the things that we who live in the limelight 
deal with, and this is again, not a sob story, um, but there's a great sense of guilt that all of us have, I'm sure, with young families and we don't necessarily all live in the same place where you miss half your kid's life because you're doing a baseball game someplace. The schedule is a merciless taskmaster and the game is a mistress and you don't get a choice of saying, ah, I think I'll take July 4th off this year because I want to go home and, and hang out with the family by the pool or at the beach for the barbecue. Uh, you have to be willing to do that. And they've seen that firsthand and they understand that and uh, they're willing to um, endure that to try to forge their own path and carry on the tradition, if you'll pardon the pun. And it really is a tradition, if you think about it. I mean, that, you know, we're talking about Harry. We're talking about your, yeah. your dad. You're talking about yourself. You're talking about your kids. This is going to run for many, many years. Well, we hope so. Uh, <laughs> look, at my age, I, I need somebody to push my wheelchair in about 20 years. George, so, uh, but no, look, I, I'm really proud of them. And, uh, you know, their mom, Susan, uh, my wife, has been an unbelievably great um, uh, touchstone for them because, again, I'm gone. And I, I've said this before, and I will continue to say it till, till I broadcast my last game, uh, the wives and the mothers at home don't get enough credit for what we do. We win the awards or we get yelled at on Twitter or whatever. Uh, it's the wives at home that make this possible because they have to be mother, father, husband, wife, all at once. And uh, she has um, really instilled in them a great sense of decency, a great sense of responsibility, a great sense of uh, sweetness, I guess, that I think is lacking with a lot of people in our business. And uh, I can't think of a better compliment for my sons than what they get when they meet uh, members of the opposite sex in college. And they say, you guys are so nice. We're not used to seeing that. We're not used to hanging around nice guys. And um, I, I can't be more proud of them for that. Because at the end of the day, uh, whether you broadcast game seven of the World Series or you're doing PA at your local high school, it takes nothing to be a nice person. And I think that's the thing that I'm really, really proud of for myself and that I've passed along to my sons with my wife's help. Uh, they're, they're really great kids and whatever they, whatever they do, I'm gonna be really, really proud of them. And I know they're gonna do great things. You know, it's interesting to note, you are quite active on social media. And I know this because you'll occasionally comment on something I said or, or someone else I follow. We're talking strictly sports here. So tell me a story I don't know if, this ever got you into hot water? Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think, I think I don't, I don't, I don't do social media very well, so I'm not as active as you think I am. Um, I think the hard part for us in the world that we live in now, and you can't help but delve into and out of sports with this answer, and this is in no way an indictment of anything. I'm just speaking personally. Uh, I think that people in the public eye are at a real disadvantage when they engage in social media, because mm -hmm. as you know, George, you worked in talk radio. When you're in talk radio and you're in the studio, you have the dump button. Uh, if you engage in social media as a, uh, a prominent person, it's the audience that has the dump button because all they have to do is screenshot something and it lives on forever. It can take on a life of its own. I mean, how many people in our business have lost their jobs and their livelihoods because of something they've said or done either uh, by commission or by omission by engaging in social media? And, I, you know, I think sometimes fans at home forget that while we have a famous job, we're also citizens and patriots and have opinions. And uh, that doesn't make us right, but it sure as heck doesn't make us wrong. And all too often, uh, I, here's where I will use a sporting uh, uh, analogy. Just because you're a Cardinal fan doesn't mean you're an a-hole and vice versa. And I think that's the real problem with social media is that there's a whole lot of, uh, as I call it, Twitter courage and things that are said about you or your family or your profession or your talent level that nobody would in their right mind say to you in person, much less mm -hmm. to their grandmother. Yep. And that's why I kind of stay away from it. I use it as an information source. 
But, uh, you know, the old saying, don't lie down with pigs because all you do is end up in the mud. Uh, it's, it's not worth it. So uh, for me, social media is a, um, a somewhat useful tool, but not one that I relish getting into all that often. Here's my final question, which I ask every guest. If not for sports announcing, Chip, what would you have been? Huh. Great question. Um, I, I, it almost happened. Uh, I had a very influential professor at the University of Georgia named Dr. William Lee. Uh, who's also teaching my son's uh, communications law. Uh, brilliant man, uh, was the most difficult class I took in college. It's the only B I got uh, at UGA and in my uh, uh, journalism core. And I was prouder of that B than I was of any of the A's that I got. Uh, brilliant mind, he's argued uh, First Amendment cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, just a brilliant, brilliant mind. And I thought about going to law school uh, because of him. And my dad said, if you want to do it, great. I'm all in, whatever you want. Um, and I, I thought about uh, four years of law school, and I just said, no, the world doesn't need another lawyer. I guess the world probably saying they don't need another carry behind the mic, but that's another story. Uh, but it was either communications law or uh, my maternal grandfather uh, was a dentist in St. Louis and was the kindest, gentlest, most decent man I ever knew. And uh, I thought about going into medicine, uh, medical school. I love kids. So I thought about pediatrics, um, but my biology grades weren't particularly good. I was an okay student. I wasn't dedicated and all the things that our, care, our uh, uh, first responders and, and caregivers go through, I wasn't prepared to deal with at that time. So uh, if it wasn't broadcasting, it would have been pediatrics or law. Uh, I think I chose wisely. Uh, it's a lot more fun. There's no heavy lifting. I get half the season off. So it's not such a bad deal. Thank you, Chip Carey, for telling me a story I don't know. Anytime, George. My thanks to WGN-TV, TBS, and KMOX for those memorable highlights. And big thanks to T.J. Reeves, who worked diligently behind the scenes to put this podcast on the map. Will Hatzel, whose deft editing makes this podcast sound a whole lot better. And T.T. Shinkin, whose graphics are an artistic delight. And thanks again to our sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market for their generous support. Join me next time for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.